The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 28. And I'm going to go right to the reading of the text, so I need to find that fairly quickly. And I want to tell you in just a moment why I think this is such a great passage, but why it's also a very troubling passage for me. So Matthew 28, uh, if you don't mind, let's just stand as we read God's Word. Uh, If we can't stand for the resurrection, we can't stand for anything. Matthew 28, verse number 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, Come and see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you in the Galilee, there shall ye see him, lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this blessed word. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ who rose arose from the grave. That is our great hope. Lord, we look forward to his coming again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this has been a very, very long journey. We finally reached the last chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. There are two things that are a little bit unnerving to me about this passage as we begin today. The first is that we're almost at the end. And one of these Sunday mornings, very soon, I'm going to stand in front of you and ask you to open to another passage of Scripture. And I'm a little bit scared about that because uh, Matthew has become, for almost now seven years, a very trusted friend. This is a good place to go to preach from the Word of God. So that's a little bit unnerving to me. I think the second thing that bothers me about this is preaching a resurrection sermon in July. Uh, This is supposed to be at Easter, isn't it? That's when we talk about the resurrection, not in July. But I don't think that we really ought to have that kind of feeling about it because the resurrection is foundational for our faith. I mean, this is a theme that is spoken of very frequently in the apostles' preaching. Next week, uh, as I begin the message, I want to show you that, how the apostles were always preaching the resurrection of Christ. And so they began meeting, the apostles began, and the church began meeting on the first day of the week, every week of every month, because it was the first day that Jesus arose from the dead and left behind him an empty tomb. And the apostles never thought anything about having an Easter service. 
or setting aside one particular time of the year where they would speak about the resurrection of Christ. That was completely foreign to them. And they, they were always preaching how Jesus arose from the dead. So they would never imagine that one day of the year would be set aside and you would limit the exposition of the resurrection of Christ to that particular time in the springtime of the year and that would be just about the only time that you would talk about it. Now, another notation about Matthew 28 is that this is the last chapter of this gospel account, but it's by no means the end of the story. This is not the end. What we have here is actually a glorious beginning. This is a great crescendo in the Word of God that Jesus came out of the tomb, that He arose from the dead, and that is just a, a wonderful thing that we're able to preach. So we're, we're not leaving Christ in a tomb. We're not talking about the cross. We do talk about it. But we're talking about Jesus arose from the dead. So this is the height of the entire gospel story. Without this, we have no salvation. We have to have Jesus' resurrection. This part of Scripture, as all, has to be unquestionably true. Now before we get into this text, I would like to look at some Scriptures that were written in anticipation that there is life after death and that there is going to be a change in us because that Jesus arose from the dead. Now, two of my favorite scriptures on this are in the book of Job. And as you know, Job was very severely tested. He needed a bright ray of hope that things for him were not always going to stay that way. And he believed that uh, the trials of his life were not all that he had to settle for. So he says in Job 14, 14, If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. Now the first part of that is a rhetorical question. Is it possible for the dead to live again? And he asked that question with a full assurance that there would be an expected change. That he was going to change from that corrupt body that he was living in where all that pain and suffering was taking place. That he was going to be changed from that, from that body that caused so much misery. And so he follows that up with this marvelous passage in the 19th chapter. In fact, we sang a song about it just a moment ago, Job 19, where it says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Now, there's something very unique about that scripture, and it is that it was written before any other book of the Bible was written. Job is the oldest book in scripture, and so in the very beginning of what God had to say to man, it is evident that Job was already aware that his Redeemer was living, and that he expected that in his body he would see God. And would you also note this, that this is nearly... 3,000 years before Paul wrote that definitive chapter on the resurrection body in 1 Corinthians 15. 3,000 years before that, Job already knew this, that God had revealed this to him, that there is a Redeemer. And he hoped to see that Redeemer because the Redeemer would come and he would leave behind him an empty tomb. Psalm 49 is another great example. The psalmist writes in verses 6 and 7, they that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. Now there the psalmist is establishing there is a need for redemption. But then he goes on in verse number 15, and this is the one I want you to really see. 
But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me, Selah. Daniel, who is that great prophet, who is more precise in the timing of his prophetic utterances, wrote this, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt, And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. And those are just a few of the examples of the hope of resurrection that permeates Old Testament Scripture. It's throughout the Old Testament that this body is going to be changed, that there is life after death, because one day, as those Old Testament prophets saw, Jesus would be crucified, he would leave a borrowed tomb, and after three days he would conquer death and rise victoriously over the grave. Now the resurrection, the resurrection is an event that's peculiar to Christianity. Of all the major religions of the world, only Christianity has a doctrine of the bodily resurrection. Even when you talk about false Christianity, when you speak of Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, they do not have the Apostles' doctrine and Jesus' doctrine of the bodily resurrection. You only find this in true Christianity. And you remember that the Jews in the New Testament, they were arguing over, is there really a resurrection? So you had Pharisees who said, there is a resurrection of the dead. You had the Sadducees who said, there is no resurrection from the dead. And so they're arguing about this all the time. But neither side, Pharisees or Sadducees, ever said that Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish nation, was still alive. No, Abraham was buried in the cave of Machpelah. And they knew that his body was still there. None of them ever said that Abraham arose from the dead. And you've heard this many times in resurrection sermons, that Muhammad is still dead, he's still in the grave in Medina. Buddha was cremated, his ashes were spread around to different shrines. Nobody talks about Buddha rising from the dead. Confucius is still in a grave in China. Six million followers, but none of them ever said that Confucius arose from the dead. And you know why? Because Christianity is the only religion that has verifiable proof that its founder is alive. That there is truly a resurrection from the dead. Now that's the point that I want to start with today. And that's where we're going to end today. Just this one point. And that is the facts. The facts. How do we know that the resurrection is true? Well, we establish it in the same way that we do any other any other event of history, how do we tell that something is true? As I was studying for the message, I read a very interesting comment by one author. He was speaking of the song that we sing that I think all of you are familiar with, the song, He Lives. We, we sing that uh, around at Easter time. Other times of the year we sing it as well, but this song, He Lives. And it has a line in it that says, You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. Now, if you're a Christian, you, you are convinced of that, aren't you? I mean, you know that Jesus lives because he's come into your heart. You feel that. You have a relationship with him. You know that he's living because he's put that feeling into your heart. He, he is alive, so you're aware of his presence. He's alive in you by faith in him. And that's the only way that the death and resurrection of Christ actually mean anything to you. It's what you know by faith. And yet this author said also that if you are are looking for a good reason to believe that Jesus is alive, you don't have to rely on that subjective feeling. 
You couldn't convince a non-believer anyway with a subjective feeling. You don't have to rely on that because there's plenty of proof otherwise. There is plenty of objective proof that Jesus actually did arise from the dead. In fact, there's more objective proof for the resurrection of Christ than there is for any event of ancient history. We know more about this, more has been said about this, more has been told us about this, more witnesses of this that have survived all of this time, uh, the writings have survived all of this time than anything that you read in ancient history. Now, first of all, there isn't any reason to believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not reliable historians. Why would you have a reason to believe that they are not absolutely, truthfully accurate? And it's not just what they said, but there were others that know that Jesus came back to life because they were witnesses of it. There were the women that we've just read about at the tomb. There were the guards that were at the tomb. There were priests who couldn't account for it, and so they concocted this very strange lie to try to cover it up. And then we also know there's the Apostle Paul who said there were over 500 witnesses that saw him at one time before he ascended into heaven. And those witnesses were still alive when the Gospels were being circulated throughout the world, and none of them, we don't have any record of any of these people denying that it actually did happen, that they actually did see Jesus after he arose from the grave. Now, the point of this is that if we had any other historical event that had such overwhelming evidence to it, we would never deny that it's true. That's how we recognize history. What did people say? What did, what did they, what, what have they seen? What did they tell us about? And that's what we find with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no logical reason to deny it. There is more reason to believe that Jesus arose from the dead than you'll ever find of evidence that Brutus killed Caesar. So the facts are there. There's abundant evidence of this. Well, we see in the Scriptures that it starts very early on a Sunday morning. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. When I was preparing to begin this chapter, I started by going back to some of those Easter sermons that I preached over the past 12 years. And I thought, well, I'll just see what I've already said about this, would have already written about Matthew chapter 28. And my great surprise, in those 12 years, I have never preached an Easter sermon from this text. I've always gone someplace else. I've never come to Matthew 28. And I wonder, why is that true? Why, why did I never stop here? And the answer to that is that Matthew has the simplest explanation of all the gospel accounts. Really, not really, I should say, not much explanation. There's not a whole lot here. It's very simple to understand. There's no, there, there's, there's, it's just reading. It's, it's easy reading. Nothing hard. There's no sensationalism as, with this as you would expect. Now, in the gospel accounts, Matthew is the one who is the most straightforward, most simple and Matthew explains the resurrection just like he did the crucifixion. Do you remember when we talked about that? How straightforward that Matthew was? That he talks about Jesus being beaten, but he doesn't say anything other than, well, he got beaten. And he got nailed to a cross. And that's all Matthew says. They nailed him to the cross. And they never, he never talks about how he felt, what he was going through, what was he was imagining, well, what, 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 what was going on while all that happened. Matthew says, they just nailed him to a cross. And we see the same type of thing here as we look at the resurrection of Matthew's account. Very simple. This is just what happened. And he tells us what happened. And there's not a lot that goes along with it. 
So it's very early in the morning, the Scripture says. It's at the end of the Sabbath. That's better interpreted that it was after the Sabbath because the Sabbath ended at 6 o'clock on that Saturday night previous. The Sabbath was ended. So sometime in the very early hours of the morning, as dawn was approaching, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, left their homes and they headed for the tomb. Mark tells us that there were others. Um, Salome, Salome, if you want, however you want to pronounce that, the mother of James and Joan. She, John, she went. And Joanna, the wife of Chuzza. Chuzza was a steward of the house of Herod Antipas. She went. And very likely there were other women that went with them. And it started before daybreak. And you notice that the scriptures don't say anything like this. They don't say, oh, it was Sunday. Jesus arose on Sunday. The scriptures don't say that because the Jews never said that. They always numbered their days according to the Sabbath. So the first day of the week is the first day after the Sabbath. The second day of the week, second day after the Sabbath, so you have Sunday. Second day is Monday. Third day is Tuesday, and that's the way they numbered and so on. You don't have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. They didn't use that kind of terminology because that came later. Those names, uh, most of them were given because of pagan gods. So they never used that kind of terminology. So when he says it was the first day of the week, that means the first day after the Sabbath. And so that's, that's, that's when they came. And so the women came on the first day of the week, and you read this and you think, oh, well, the reason that they waited until the first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath, is because it was three days since Jesus was crucified and put into the tomb, and they knew that Jesus said, I'm going to arise on the third day. So they just stayed at home, and they waited for three days, and then they said, let's go to the tomb and see if it actually happened. That's not why they were there. They didn't come to see if the grave was empty. They came expecting that they were going to find a body in that tomb. And they came with the purpose of anointing the body with more funeral spices. And actually what they were doing, they were trying to get there before the body was so decayed that putting spices on it wouldn't matter any longer. It would stink so bad that there's no point in putting more burial spices on it. So they tried to get there early enough in order to do that, and it's a very interesting thing, a very interesting part of the story, because it takes us back to what Jesus did in John chapter 11 when he raised Lazarus from the dead. You see, the Jews had this superstition that they believed that the Spirit hung around for at least four days before it actually left. You have a dead body, but the Spirit's still hanging around there. Do you remember what Jesus did? He waited four days until he raised Lazarus from the dead. And you wonder, why did he wait four days? Because Jesus knew that superstition. That's all it was, was a superstition. But what he wanted to show them was that not only could he raise a body from the dead, but he could put the Spirit back in it. He waited four days in order to show them, I can raise people from the dead, I can do more than that. He was, I can put the Spirit back in him. So what in the way he's saying, this guy is actually dead. He is, well, fully dead. I mean, he's dead dead, I guess. Three days dead. And so Jesus waited four days until that superstition could run its course, and then he raised Lazarus from the dead. So here we have these ladies arriving on the third day, not because they expected to find a resurrection, but because they just wanted to get there before the Spirit was completely gone. And then it makes no difference at all whether they anoint the body. It's just a 
It's just a superstition, but it's out of that false concern that they actually arrived at the tomb. Now, the last thing that they expected was that they would see Jesus. None of the men understood this. They didn't understand it, even though Jesus told them many, many times that he was going to rise from the dead. So when they, as they were going, the scriptures tell us that, that they were wondering, Mark says this, that they were wondering, how are we going to get into the tomb? That's what they're worried about. How are we going to get into the tomb? Now, they knew a stone had been rolled in front of the opening, and these were large, flat stones weighing about a ton, run along a track in front of the tomb. And so they, they wanted, how are we going to get in? And then there's another problem that apparently they didn't know about it, that sometime after they had left three days ago when Jesus was put, put into the tomb, they didn't know that this, is ha- this had happened, that the chief priest and the Pharisees had asked that a guard be placed there. They weren't expecting that they would get there and find a guard around the tomb and the Roman seal on the tomb. So... When you think about this, they wouldn't have gone there on that third day to try to see Jesus and anoint his body because they never would have gotten in with a guard there. So they didn't know about it. They must not have known about that. So they come to the tomb. They're, they're not skipping along and merrily, gleefully approaching the tomb, thinking Jesus had risen from the dead. No, they expected to find a body in the tomb. And they were hoping they would find somebody to help them roll that stone away. Now, later, when Mary Magdalene saw Jesus, um, she thought that he was the gardener. Maybe he had moved the body. So there's no thoughts here about a resurrection. Now, what Matthew is doing here, he's just laying out the facts of what happened. It's just about daybreak, and they were going along, and before they started, there was, or as they were going, there was an earthquake. An angel descended and rolled away the stone from the door. And the angel was sitting on that stone. The language suggests here that the angel was actually the cause of that earthquake. That probably as his feet touched down to the earth, the glorious power of God accompanied him. And when he touched down, the whole city shook. And the women felt that. Verse 3 says that the angel shined like lightning. His clothes were as white as snow. And I'd like to talk about that part for just a second. Uh, The lightning, that's indicative of the glory of God. The bright white speaks of the perfect righteousness and holiness of God. And we kind of read a little bit about that in the Psalm 104 just a moment ago where God clothes himself in light. Did you know God is the source of light? God is the source of light. In in Jesus' transfiguration, his, his, his face shone as the sun. His clothing was as bright as light. So whenever you see that brightness and light, that's a symbol of God's glory. And, and His glory is that source of light. And that's why the Bible says in heaven, there is never any need of the sun. Why? Because the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, His glory is the light of that city. Now it's interesting that Matthew mentions one angel that sat on the stone. Mark says there, were na- there was an angel that looked like a young man. He was sitting in the tomb. Luke says there were two men that were in shining garments. John says there were two angels. One was sitting at the head where Jesus was, and the other was sitting at the feet where the body had lain. And you ever wonder about that? Why why are are there four different accounts of what they saw as they went to the tomb? Why four different accounts? Well, it depends on the author's perspective. These aren't contradictory accounts. They're complementary accounts. You know what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches there is an innumerable 
amount of angels. There were probably thousands of angels at the tomb when Jesus arose. Some appeared. One sat on the stone. Some appeared like men. The Bible says they can appear like men. You don't even know that they're angels, right? So some appeared that way. And then as different things are going on, different times, there's probably angels making their appearance, manifesting themselves, and others don't. And so it's very likely that each of these men, as they are accounting this and heard what, what the others were saying, they just wrote it from a different perspective. People saw different things. Angels are everywhere, folks. They're in this room. You can't see them. I, I wouldn't say that one of you is an angel. I've seen, to, I've seen the way you act. So I'm not going to say that, that you're, you're mis, we're mistaking you, uh, that you're really an angel. But angels are like that. I mean, it's a fascinating thing to discover, I mean, to, uh, to study about angels. But Matthew's purpose here, though, is not to talk about an exposition of angels and how angels appear or anything else. His purpose is to tell us, how did that stone get moved? How did that stone get rolled out of the way? And here's the answer. There was a powerful angel that came and rolled it back. And I don't imagine that he had to grunt and strain in order to do that. And verse number 4 says that the guards were so afraid when they saw this angel that they shook, they became like dead men. They probably turned as white as the angel. And, and, they, and they fainted dead away. You know, as grandma, grandma used to say, they went out colder than a cucumber. I mean, they were completely unconscious when they saw this. They were so scared. You know, usually when we see pictures of this or you get it in your mind, you think about the tomb being guarded and, and you have this picture in your mind. There's a guard over here and a guard over there. And you might see pictures of that sometimes. Two guards at the tomb. No. Do you remember back where Pilate said, you have a watch? Go make it as sure as you can. What is a watch? Well, that's actually at least... 12 Roman soldiers. That's so they can keep watch all around the clock. It's not two guys. Because two guys are going to fall asleep in three days, aren't they? So they have a watch. They have several. At least 12. And a watch could be as many as 60 soldiers. I'm going to show you in a message that's coming up why I think that there were 60 and not 12. And there certainly weren't two. I'm going to tell you why I think that's true. So all of these soldiers, all at one time, were struck and went straight down to the ground from fear of this angel. They became as dead men. Now, to back up just a little bit, we learn elsewhere that Mary Magdalene came around the corner towards the tomb and she spotted that the stone was not in front of the tomb. I don't know how she missed the angel. It could have been that she just barely peeked around the corner and the angel's a little bit off to the side and all she could see was just the opening of the tomb. And she saw that it was opening, uh, that was open rather. So she didn't actually see the angel and as soon as she saw that it was open, she ran to tell Peter and John. And this is a very good place to tell you that the first people to learn about the resurrection were women. They were the first ones. They were the last ones to see the body was dead and in the tomb... And then later it was Mary Magdalene who was the first to see his risen body, see Jesus in the risen body. Now there's a lot of speculation about that. Why women? Why, why did the women see him first? Some say it's because if you want to get the word out fast, you tell a woman, woman she'll tell everybody. Now I'm not going to explore that theory any further today, but that some people say that. Others say it's as simple as this, that the women were there first. The men weren't there, so 
It had to be women. The women were there first. It's just as simple as that. But then there are others that say, no, this is a reward. This is a reward because you remember the women were at the cross. The men had sort of deserted everything. They, they were off in hiding somewhere. They only appeared there for a short time, it looks like, from Scripture. So the men are not there. The women stayed by. And then it was the women who went and helped Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus anoint the body, get all the spices on it, and get it ready for the burial. It was the women. And so they say, well, this is a reward. It was the reward for the faithfulness of the women. And so God allowed them to see the resurrection or know about it first. I don't know which it is. I, I, I don't know. But for people who say that the Bible is a man's book and there aren't enough stories about women, well, this is about as good as you can get. The greatest event in the history of the world was witnessed by a woman first. Isn't that something? It was witnessed by a woman first. That, that's pretty good information there. You know, I was thinking about this. Don't get too excited yet, ladies. Because I was thinking about this. It was a woman who first ate the fruit and became the downfall of the human race. And it was a woman that was first to see Christ, who was the seed of the woman who fixed the problem that was caused by that first woman. You understand what I'm saying? That's too much for you to think about, probably, but um, it can't be coincidental. Well, we're at verse number 5. And the angel told the women, don't be afraid. And you can imagine they were as afraid as the guards were. Why, Why wouldn't they be? An angel, the glorious angel descends. Why wouldn't they be afraid of that? But this is what God can do. God can take fear away. God calms troubled souls. And so very gently the angel said, I know who you're looking for. Now you remember that Mary Magdalene had left. She ran back to tell Peter and John. And she she, she went back with the claim that somebody had stolen the body. She doesn't know anything yet. So she goes back with this claim that somebody had stolen the body. And I imagine that Peter and John were very highly skeptical of what she said because Mary Magdalene was a little bit loony anyway. Did you know that? She had seven devils in her, remember? So there, Peter and John are thinking, here we go again. Here comes Mary with this fantastic story. Well, the other women stayed. They, they were invited by the angel to come and inspect the tomb. And in verse number 6, the angel says, He's not here, for he's risen as he said. The angel did not say, You bunch of numbskulls, what did you expect to find here? He said that he was going to rise from the grave. What did you expect? What did he tell you? Well, thank God for this, that God overlooks our weak faith. God is long-suffering with us. God is patient with us. And the angel was patient, and he very gently said, Come and see the place where the Lord lay. And that was a very simple, loving invitation. It's not a reprimand for their misunderstandings. And God is patient with us until we learn to trust everything that God says. Now, at this point, I should comment on why the angel rolled the stone away. I love Matthew Henry. How many of you know who Matthew Henry is? Many of you do. Matthew Henry is a great old Puritan commentator. Any preacher that knows anything at all loves Matthew Henry. I I, I scarcely know a preacher that doesn't have Matthew Henry in his library. If you find one, you probably need to find another preacher. Because Matthew Henry, he's a staple. And I love to read Matthew Henry. I started reading Matthew Henry when when I was just a teenager. And I've been reading him ever since. But I think, you know, Matthew Henry's not God. Matthew Henry wasn't perfect. And I think that he's wrong about this scripture. Because Matthew Henry indicates that the angel 
came and rolled back the stone, and then Jesus came out. I don't think that that's true. I don't think the angel let Jesus out of the tomb. I think Jesus was gone. He was already gone before the angel ever got there. And so you might ask, well, how did he get out of that tomb? How is that possible? There's a stone in front of it. Well, I think it's possible in the same way that happened on that Sunday night, the same Sunday night. that here, Here's what happened, John 20, 19. Then the same day at evening, that's the same day that he arose, in the evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. So the doors are shut on Sunday night. The lock, the, the windows are shut. The disciples are huddled in there for fear of the Jews. They're afraid that the Jews are going to find them and haul them out. Now you notice they are assembled on the first day of the week. You see them already beginning to commemorate the resurrection, but in a strange way, because they have this fear. They, they don't know yet all about the resurrection. They, they'd seen things earlier in the day, but they don't have proper understanding of what happened. So they're there in fear, they're fearful, and they're in a locked room, and suddenly Jesus appears out of nowhere. Now remember that Thomas wasn't there. Sunday night, and Thomas wasn't there. And you know the moral of that story. Don't miss church on Sunday night. If you do, you may miss Jesus. And there's a lot of you that miss Jesus because you don't come on Sunday night. So that's how Jesus got out of the tomb. He just passed through the stone. A one-ton stone, one stone, that's no, no problem to Jesus. There was nobody there to see that happen. Nobody actually witnessed the resurrection itself. The angel wasn't there to let him out. The angel rolled back the stone so the women could see in. So the disciples could get in and see that there was nobody. How else would they know? So the angel just rolled it away in order to let them see in. Now let's talk about that for just a few minutes. Let's turn to John chapter 20. We're winding down here. John chapter 20. And what we're doing is examining the facts of the case. What evidence did they find in the tomb? Now Mary Magdalene, she started off. She didn't, she didn't enter into the tomb. She thought the body was stolen. So she didn't know what happened and whether grave robbers had come and stolen the body away. She didn't know if there was something left in the tomb. Was there some evidence there? Or is there no trace of him? Well, it turns out there is something there. So we look at John chapter 20, and we see what happened when Mary Magdalene went to get Peter and John. This is John 20, verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark under the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher, then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, that would be to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together. And the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet when he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So Mary Magdalene went and found Peter and John. They took off running to see what was going on. John's a sprinter, so he arrived there before Peter. And he paused at the doorway of the tomb, and he stooped to look in. The entrance of the tomb is low, 
and the tomb was actually large enough for several people to enter and be in at the same time. I mean, often these types of tombs were, were places of burial for more than one person. So a tomb might be opened just to put another body in. But remember, we're talking about a new tomb. This had just been hollowed. It had never been used before. And it was a borrowed tomb, as you know, because it didn't have to be used for very long. So, Jesus, so John stopped at the door where he could see, and he could see that the grave clothes were still there. Then Peter comes. He arrives after John, and John's probably blocking the door. So Peter pushed him aside and entered. And there he saw the grave clothes, the clothes that covered the torso and the legs were separated from the piece that covered Jesus' head, a napkin that was laying separately by itself. And it was obvious the body hasn't been taken. The only way to get the grave clothes off was to unwind every one of those strips that were carefully wound round and round the body. That's the only way that you're going to get them off. But the grave clothes were there, and they are very neatly arranged. They'd been soaked with myrrh. There's a hundred pounds of ointments on them, all the aloes. They'd been tightly wound around the body. And so to get those off would have left a terrible mess inside the tomb. A, a terrible mess. So if you're going to steal the body, you're going to take the clothes and all. You, you take them all. And, and if you cut off the clothes, then you want to take them with you because they contained all the valuable ointments. But the clothes are still there. They're very neatly laid out and undisturbed. Now, if Jesus had risen from the dead and passed through those clothes, then you would expect that you would find them neatly there, just collapsed under the weight of all of those spices. And that is exactly what Peter and John saw. The evidence was compelling enough that John didn't need any further explanation. He just believed. Now, the original language here in John... Uh, 20 reflects the different ways in which Peter and John looked into that tomb. When it says that John looked, the word that's used there is just a word that means that he just gazed in the tomb. He just looked in the tomb. Just a very common word. Just kind of looking in. But when it comes to Peter in verse number 6, the word changes there. And the Greek word for it is theorio. Theorio which is the word from which we get theorized. And what that meant is that Peter very carefully scrutinized the sign of the scene that he saw. He very carefully looked at it and weighed it in his mind what could have happened here. Now, the, re the, the, the point about John looking in and seeing the way that he saw is that the evidence was so compelling that he didn't even have to think about it any further. It, it's apparent Jesus has risen from the dead. There's no point disputing that, according to John. Well, now the next question we might ask is, why didn't Jesus arrive with the, arise with the grave clothes still on? I mean, why, why didn't this go out grave clothes at all? Why didn't he rise that way? That's why God planned it, not us. Because if the grave clothes are gone, then you have the perfect scenario for the lie that would be later told, his body was stolen. Because that's exactly what you expect. There's not going to be grave clothes there. You can't, you can't deal with all these guards, and we'll talk about this later on too, you can't deal with all the guards there and all, the, uh, all that and take time to unwrap a body and do all that and get it out of the tomb. You take the grave clothes with you. So God planned this. There are grave clothes there to prove that Jesus had to arise from the dead. So you start to gather up all this evidence, and there's no reason for a rational person to deny the resurrection. 
and you throw out that evidence and you would never be able to prove any event from ancient history. I mean, folks, what we have here is the gold standard of verification. Anything less than this and the resurrection is suspect. If you have more than this, then it's impossible. God knows exactly what to do. And yet you have some professor at a Christian university, he's got his glasses down here at the end of the nose, and he says, I don't believe in the resurrection. And people say, oh, how brilliant he is. What a thinker he is. He's such an intellectual. He's figured this out. This can't be a resurrection. No, folks, he's dumber than a box of rocks. You have all the proof here. You can't deny the proof. And that problem remains for anybody who denies the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The proof is all there. It's greater than anything you have for any event in the rest of history. So, you have those those apostles there. Why were they willing to die? For they knew what was a lie. Why that? Why were they martyred? For preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of them were except John. And John had this great privilege of being boiled in oil. Because he preached the living Christ. And there are all those that come afterwards. All the brilliant minds in history. There have been many of them that have been Christians. How can billions of people be duped? The answer is they're not duped. They just have facts. They have all the evidence that's needed. There's plenty of evidence. We know... Because Jesus lives in our heart, and so we have two avenues of proof. We have subjective and objective evidence. Now finally, of course, is the, the proof of the resurrection is that Jesus appeared. He didn't just shoot up into heaven, and nobody ever saw him again, and so everybody's left wondering, what happened to Jesus? What happened to that body? No, he appeared. Now, the testimony of the angel, that's good. Testimony of the women at the graveside, that's good. Presence of the grave clothes, that's, that's good proof. But what beats this? He appeared. People saw him. All of these people saw him. Now, back in the text of, of verse number 9, it says, Jesus met them and he spoke to them. And he said, all hail. And what he says right there is just as remarkable as some of the sayings from the cross. He said, all hail. And actually the word all, that's a part of Tyndale's translation. What Jesus said was, hail. And that word simply means, hello. Can you imagine that? Beaten, nailed to a cross, taken down, wrapped in grave clothes, resurrected in power and glory, passing through a stone. And he says... Hello. Then he said, Be not afraid. And to the women he said, Go tell my brethren. We're going to talk about that more next time. He was going to meet them in Galilee. But for now he says, Go tell my brethren. You ought to underline that. Go tell my brethren. He did not say, Go tell those deserters. Go tell those traitors. All of them who said they would never ever leave me. All of them who said, I'll go to the death with you. Go tell those traitors. Go tell those ones who didn't even care enough to come and claim my body. Go tell them I'm alive and I never want to see them again. Jesus said, go tell my brethren. Isn't that just a marvelous thing? The scripture says no matter what we've done to him, he will save us. And he's not ashamed to call us his brethren. You ever thought about how many times that you were ashamed of him? 
How many times you won't speak His name? How many times that you have the opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus Christ and you're back there cowering somewhere? You're ashamed of Him. He's never ashamed of you. Now, folks, these are facts. These, these are facts that are undisputable. And because God, God is truthful, Jesus arose just as He said. He is the Savior because He is alive. And so because He is alive, just like Job, I know in my flesh I shall see God. And that is exactly the same for you. By your faith in Jesus Christ, for everybody who believes this evidence, that the faith, that the, that the death, rather, and the resurrection of Christ are personal acts that Jesus did for you and you believe it by faith, subjecting objectively, you have the facts for all of you, you are going to see Jesus again. You're going to see him in your flesh, this special body that God has prepared for you. But if you want more facts, I'll give you just one more. And that is that lost people are also going to see the resurrected Christ. They're not going to see him in the same way that you and I will see him who know him. They're not going to see him with the same hope that we have. But the Bible says, as we sang a minute ago, Every eye is going to see him. Everybody's going to bow down before him. Everybody's going to know that Jesus is alive. So one day, every person will believe in the resurrection. I'm just telling you right now, it's not good to be forced into recognizing it. The tomb was empty. That's a fact. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. You, you left your word for us to see all of this, to read the history of it, to see that there can be no doubt about this, no reason objectively to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then you add this on top of that, that we can come to you by faith and we believe this. We believe Jesus died and rose again for us. And then that subjective proof comes to us. We know that you are alive in our heart. That's the only way that we're going to see you. The objective proof will never lead us to heaven. But subjectively, knowing in our hearts, knowing that you've saved us and receiving you by faith, that's what it's going to take. So nobody who just believes there are facts, nobody who just believes that is going to get to heaven to see you. So Lord, speak to our hearts. Make it real in our hearts. Speak to some soul today that they may realize the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And leave us with this hope, all of us to have this hope that we do know you, that no matter how bad life gets, no matter how terrible it is, just like Job, just like Job, as bad as it was, he had a greater hope that his Redeemer lived. Help us to see that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.